Uh, and so now I would just ask you to open your Bibles and turn them to the book of Exodus. We're going to start there quickly, and then we're going to move around. And if you like to move around in your Bible, you can follow me, or you can just listen to me read some stuff. Uh, but what we've been doing in these Ten Commandments we call the top ten is we've been looking at what God said to his people in the Old Testament, contrasting it with what Jesus has said in the New Testament, and then applying it to our lives. And each week, we've been kind of having these question and answer times, basically just narrowing down the text and the ideas to a few core questions. And today is no different. It's just that the topic is very relevant and personal. So here are the questions. Uh, if you have someone that's missing this service today, you can sure send them this message. But, but don't do so in judgment. Just maybe a, a polite, loving nudge if you know someone needs to hear this. Uh, here's the first question. I'm just going to run through and we're going to start. Number one, what does the Bible say? Because that's all ultimately that really matters. What does the Bible say about adultery? And then more specifically with the first question, immorality and adultery. So we're going to cover both in just a second. Number two, what's the consequence? How does it affect you? How does it affect those around you? How does it even affect people you don't know? What does the Bible show us? And what can we glean from that? Number three, how can adultery be prevented? Not that you can like have this, you know, top five things you do and then you can ensure that you'll never sin. But what are some things, and this is where it's going to get really practical, what are some things that I've seen counseling people the last 20 years? And then how can you heal from it? Because it's the gospel. And then if that's not in the equation, then what are we doing here? Because we're all about the blood of Jesus covering sin and making us new creation. And so let, let's get started right out of the gate. Question number one. What's the Bible say about this issue? And then the text, of course, is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 14 in the ESV says, You shall not commit adultery. And I don't think anybody would get up here in a church service and go, oh, You know, I have a problem with that text. Right? This is something that's running rampant in and around us. And it's, and it's not just outside of the church. It's definitely inside of the church as well. And so the Seventh Commandment, is probably the something that would get the most hits on social media when we start quoting stuff and saying stuff. And it gets the most hits and it's the most relevant because it's become America's drug of choice. Sex has become kind of America's drug of choice. And there are these two extremes in the church, and, and one of them is really not relevant anymore, but it used to be. Like the Puritans had this view where you never talk about sex ever. In fact, maybe you don't even have sex. There's no such thing. And then we live in a world in 2023 that would say there's really nothing that matters outside of our sexual experience. And then when you hear people talk about sex, they don't talk about it as something that they, you know, is a part of their life. What do they call it? I, I addressed this a couple months ago in church when we talked about immorality. It, it's, it becomes so prevalent in something that we worship that we say something that's incredibly dangerous about it. We call it what? You know, we call it our identity. And, and just as a caveat, when you call anything your identity outside of Christ, you are tracking on some scary territory. And so then the Bible says, do not commit adultery. And another way of translating that when it comes to immorality is this thing called sex, keep it sacred. It's a gift from God to be glorified by and to God. And so we battle with, we lose to, we're damaged by this topic. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, it's kind of interesting because where we went last week was thou shall not kill, and killing is death of a life, and then right after that, adultery, which is death of a relationship. It brings death. 
And both, here's what's interesting, both have this thing called the death penalty attached to it. And so what does the Bible say about it? Here's the first thing. We're going to the Old Testament. Write it down. It's a serious offense. And that's kind of the duh moment, right? It's a serious offense to the point of the death penalty. And the reason it's a serious penalty is because it's a serious infraction. The way it's defined is sex involving at least one married person. Any kind of sexual infraction done by two, one or two married persons. Deuteronomy 22, 22. Very clear. The Old Testament never beats around the bush. It says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. Now tuck that in your brain because we're going to end in the New Testament. And I want you to just remember that verse because we're going to come back to it at the very end. Leviticus 20.10 says the same thing. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adult and the adulteress shall be put to death. And so there are these boundaries surrounding our sexuality. And they're very clear. And so there are things that culture tells us about how sexuality works. And at the end of the day, I want you to hear me say this, and maybe you want to just look my direction so you hear me clearly. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And so what you'll notice in culture around us, especially since of technology advancement, things move all the time very quickly. There is always a new fleeting opinion with a new standard and a new boundary, and it just doesn't matter because God's boundary is crystal clear. It's very simplistic. It's a husband and a wife within the context of marriage. That's how our sexuality is expressed. And so public opinion, culture, friends, coworkers, your family members at Christmas time and Thanksgiving or that kind of beat each other up on social media and younger generations have different views. It does not really matter. That is the standard. That's the standard. And then you get to the New Testament. Hebrews 13.4 says this about sexuality. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And then the New Testament, Paul addresses the issue as well. And here's something you can write down. When it comes to intimacy, when it comes to your sexuality, it's in the confines of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. But then it also says something that's deeply theological. That Paul starts talking to the Corinthian church, and he lets them know that your sexuality is something that is not your own. In fact, he goes further with it. He says, your body is not your own. And so when you live outside of God's boundaries, you affect everyone else around you, and then you affect your relationship with God, because when you're purchased by the blood of Jesus, your, your whole being is not your own. You're purchased. In a sense, you're owned. And he deals with this with the Corinthian church, and we'll get to the backstory in a second, but he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 13. Paul says, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And then he says, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now hear, hear this right here. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So you have to know the backstory. The Corinthian church comes out of paganism. There is a temple there. There are two things that are happening in the temple. One, they can go have dinner at the temple or right outside of the temple. On the flip side of the temple, there is a brothel. And so people would go to get to dinner and then they would go have some dessert. Are you tracking? I know that sound, I heard someone else say that, I thought that was funny, an old pastor uh, in, in Dallas said that, but that's what they were doing, and so Paul's explaining that, because what they're doing is they're getting saved, and they still think things that are okay that aren't okay, 
He says, no, that's not how it works. When you do this thing, it's not just affecting you, it's affecting everyone else around you, but more importantly, it's affecting God himself, and then specifically Jesus Christ, his son, who lives within you. The Bible says the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you, that your body is now a temple. You go to this temple, you have food, you have dessert. No, you don't understand. You're the temple. And the Holy Spirit lives in you. And there is massive implication to that idea. He goes on, verse 14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And then he says this, and this is what you can underline. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That you're conjoined, that you are one and the same. That's like, that's deeply theological. I mean, you can wrap your mind around that for a long time and still not get to the end of it. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, exclamation point. Or did you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, and then he goes back to Genesis, this is every wedding sermon you'll ever hear, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one with him. So here's the idea. And maybe you've never thought about it like this before. But the idea is this, that it's not your body. And whenever a Christian is having sex in any way, Right? Married, not married. Whenever a Christian is having sex, you are taking Christ with you into that process because you're members of the same body. Which in marriage is a, is a beautiful thing. That, that there's nothing to hide. But when it's not within the context of marriage, what you're then saying is, Jesus, because I'm in you and because we are two uh, members of the same body, I am going to now make you an involuntary participant in the process that you want nothing to be a part of, in fact, that you're repulsed by. And so those things that we do that are immoral, we're bringing Christ, if we are claiming Christ, into the process. And Jesus is looking at this and with disdain. He said, I don't, I don't want any part of that part of your life, and yet you're including me in it. I mean, for how many of us does that kind of give us new lens to see how, how heartbreaking this is to God, that we would include Christ in a process that he wants to be not a part of, that he's an involuntary participant, that your body is not your own, and that now you're the temple. And here's another biblical construct for understanding sexual immorality and adultery. Because Jesus is going to go here, so we're going to go here early. He's going to preach the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in Matthew 5. And then he's going to do something that's radical. Because here's what the New Testament looks like. It's misunderstood. We look at the Old Testament and go, man, that's harsh. Here's what we should do. We should look at the New Testament and go, wow, that's way harder. Because he, he takes it from the physical to the emotional and the interpersonal. And what he says is this. He says, before you ever commit adultery with your hands... You're committing adultery with your heart. And then what he does is he takes something that affects some people and he translates it to now something that affects everybody. And so write this down before we move on. What does the Bible say about adultery? That it starts in the heart. And so those things that we let in affect then what comes out. That everything is spiritual. So those songs that we listen to, 
When, when is the last time? When is the last time you heard a song that wasn't on like a Christian radio station? And even within the Christian radio station, sometimes there's kind of a lot of cheesy songs. That's my personal opinion. But there's a lot of good songs too. But you're listening to, you know, whatever you listen to on your Apple Music or Spotify or anything like that. When's the last time you heard a song that was centered on the sanctity of marriage that wasn't about feelings outside of sex or sex outside of the marriage bed? That everything we watch is then affecting us because everything starts at a heart level. Research shows that one out of ten, one out of ten sexual acts on television are within the context of marriage. That whatever we let in, and I'll get to this later, it's like garbage in and garbage out. Because everything starts at a heart level. Everything we let in affects us. In fact, to the point of when people are getting divorced because the divorce rate's a little over half, and it's not outside of the church, it's inside of the church too, Divorce attorneys know something that we don't even realize they know because they know that these things happen at such a heart level because divorce attorneys work with it over and over and over and over again. Do you know what a divorce attorney does? Just so we're all on the same page, what a divorce attorney does when, when someone comes into their office and wants to get a divorce, the first thing they do is they go to the spouse's social media page and check out everything that's going on. Why? Well, because they know that these things happen at a heart level and they never happen in a vacuum. At a heart level, we're, we're being tainted. And it's not just what manifests in our, in our hands, but in our heart. 30% of all clicks on the internet are pornography related. That is more than Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Twitter combined. Combined. I can't even tell you. This is going to get very personal, just so you know. And it's one of those sermons where it's like, well, I'm not God, and I have the Bible just like you do. But I also have this thing that you don't have. I have like a thousand case studies in my bag. And it's one of those deals where I could be wrong. Look at me. I could be wrong, but I probably am not with this one. And so what people will do is they'll come into your office and they'll, they'll talk about not having an affair. And then you start unpacking that. And it turns out they're, they're having all sorts of emotional connections to people that aren't their spouse. And so then it would be defined as an emotional affair, which starts in the heart, but trust me, manifests in the hands. Private, personal, inappropriate relationships. Right? So you're the cornerstone if you want to have a healthy marriage, if you're not married yet, just so you know in the future. What's going to really sustain is not the infatuation that lasts at most 18 months. What's going to sustain is the friendship. And then trust me with this, young men. If you want to know what's going to trigger your future wife, if you think you can just keep your hands pure and your heart impure, if you go to your wife and you say, well, I've never physically had an affair on you. This is the way that women are wired. And women, you can tell me after service if I'm right or wrong. Because there is one thing I am not, and that's a woman, okay? So, but I, just maybe you can give me a head nod. You're like, wow, I didn't know. But you can give me a head nod as to whether or not this is accurate or not. If your husband comes to you and says to you, well, I have never had a physical affair but then you notice through his text, look at me, tell me if I'm right. Through his text, he has all sorts of personal relationships with other women and inside jokes and little nudges and little eye contact across the room because they just had a moment where there was an inside joke and they get each other and they're connected and they do things together that are supposed to be things with you. How many of you would look at that and go, well, that's, that's kind of an affair too. Because it's not designed to be that way. 
And it's starting in the heart, and it's going to manifest in the hands. Jesus talks about it, 527 of Matthew. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman with lustful intent, like not sister in Christ, lustful intent, has already committed adultery in his heart. The law focuses on the action, and then Jesus always deals with the heart. All right, question number two. Are you ready? What are the consequences of adultery? What happens? The Bible talks about it as sacred. And I heard someone actually a while back talk about it through this metaphor of a fireplace. That when it's of God and centered on the way he's called us to use it between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage, it's like a fireplace. It's a boundary around it. And when you're really cold and you don't have modern technology, you know, you go to a cabin in the woods, what is there better than a fireplace? And you light that thing up and now you're warm and it's being used with this rightful intent. But if you don't have any type of, you know, boundary around the fire and you're just like, well, you know, I'm not going to use the fireplace, but I'm just going to light that thing up in the middle of the living room with some hardwood floors. All of a sudden it's going to run rampant. It's going to destroy everything around it. And those are the consequences of it. Bible in the Old Testament, Joseph talks about staying pure, and there's Potiphar's wife who wants to sleep with them. And he says on this, he says, I'm not going to do this sin, but here's what he says. He says, I'm not going to do this great sin. He knows that it's great. It has weight to it. It has a magnitude to it. I'm not going to live like that because I know it can be destructive. I don't care if it costs me my life. I'm not going there. So The first thing would be this. What are the consequences? Well, it hurts you. It hurts you for sure you don't believe me, it's because you haven't been through something. It hurts you if it happens to you. It hurts you if you are the willing participant who is now creating pain for those around you. It hurts. Unless you have sociopathic tendencies, it hurts. I heard it through the analogy of an Eskimo. You guys remember this analogy when you were a kid, that the way an Eskimo kills a wolf? Have you guys heard of that? They take blood from an animal. I don't even know if this is true. I've, I've never met an Eskimo to my knowledge. I've never lived in Eskimo territory. But they put blood of an animal on the knife for the wolf, and then the wolf smells the blood, and it has this innate desire to, to drink up and to be filled, and so it starts licking the blood off the knife, and then it doesn't even realize because it's so infatuated with the blood. It doesn't even realize what it's getting into. And then it can't decipher even the sharp pain that it's experienced of its own blood from its tongue and the blood of the animal that it was originally licking. And all of a sudden now it's drinking its own blood to the point of killing itself. And that's, that's attached to this idea of how sexual immorality hurts you. It's this thirst that can't be satisfied. It's like this idea where you're... you're you're thirsty and you're going to be depleted of all water intake. And so you're sitting in an ocean and you have all of this water around you. And so do you say to yourself, well, I'm just going to drink the ocean water. But that thing you're trying to get to save you, to satisfy you, to quench your thirst, is actually the same thing that your internal organs can't process. That salt is then killing your body. And so that thing that we take to rescue us from whatever plight we're in, and that adulterous affair that seems so enticing is now that thing when we're thirsty that's killing us. Or that knife that's bleeding us out because it in no way can be avoided. 
immorality, adultery hurts you. Right? It hurts you. The other undeniable reality is it hurts others. It hurts others bad. It hurts your kids. It hurts the person you're sleeping with's kids. That someone else is going to go home and have that personal conversation with a spouse of 10, 15 years that they're leaving, that they're packing their bags. They're going to look their young daughters in the eye and they're going to tell them, sorry, I'm out. It's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt you. I had a wife tell me one time, she was processing through an affair and she was talking about what happened with her husband. And just so you know, it's just not a man issue. Women are cheating all the time too. I said, how are you doing? And she had this tear coming down her eye and she said, I have never felt so unattractive. I've never felt so unwanted. The church has a black eye. Everyone's just in pain because it hurts, it hurts you, but it, it, hurts, it hurts others. It has this domino effect to it. And so that's why God makes such a big deal of it. Things that have the most capacity for good can also have the most capacity for harm. Here's another one, maybe something that we haven't thought of. It hurts people we do not even know. I'm going to read a text, and it's going to sound like I'm taking it out of context, but I want to explain and just give me a little liberty here. There's a text in 2 Peter, not too long before you get to the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible, and he's talking about false prophets and false teachers, and he makes a point about the false teachers, but he uses it through the lens of adultery. In 2 Peter 2.14, he says that false teachers have eyes full of adultery. I think he's using a word picture here that we can understand because he's saying, you guys know someone that's been immoral or not been faithful to their spouse? You know how bad it's hurt people around them? He says, of that of false teachers. They're kind of like adulterers. He says, they have eyes full of adultery. They're insatiable for sin. And then he says this, they entice unsteady souls. And so when you're looking at false doctrine, it's like people that don't have a lot of doctrine, they hear something that sounds too good to be true, and then they bite on it. And he's saying, that's what a false teacher is like. But he's using it through the lens of understanding adultery because it's the same thing that's true. People that are habitual cheaters, they tend to go for certain people that have certain qualities. It's not the most confident, loving, secure, Christ-centered people. It's those people that have a past. It's those people that can be enticed. And the Bible uses this language. They have these unsteady souls to them. It's like the adulterer when he chases down or she chases down somebody else to break the covenant with and they chase down people that are broken, that have unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They're accursed children. And so here's the translation. So many times when you're hurting people that you don't know because you don't even know these people that maybe you're looking at pornography day after day after day, I can promise you this. Research will prove it. These are people who have unsteady souls to say the least. Women that have been sexually abused from a young age. Unsteady souls. People that you don't even know are affected. Husbands that you don't know. Children that you don't know. Family members that you don't know. And you're saying, honey, I got to go. I got to drink this water. I know it's got salt in it, but this is what I'm going to go do. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting others. You're hurting people you don't know. Here's the third question. I'm going to get super practical. How can adultery be prevented? And I just want to caveat that by saying 
we all have a personal choice to sin, and there's no secret formula. But there are things. I'm going to get kind of just give you some background of things that I see in, in counseling. And so counseling has moved at New Life from something that I can do individually to something that I'll talk about publicly, and then we will resource you out for the most part because I can only see so many people. But there are certain things that we see with this issue as pastors, and there are ways to protect the marriage covenant. Very practical. Here, here you can write this down. And I think if you just like don't write things down, this might be the time to do it. How can you help this in your own marriage? It's, it's not necessarily an issue for you, but you want to take some safeguards. Here's the first one. We'll talk to people that aren't married. Don't practice cheating. Write that down. You want to safeguard your future marriage? Don't practice cheating. That's the devastation of everything happening around us. Men are waiting now nationally to the age of 30 to get married. Women in their late 20s, which we can all debate whether or not that's good or bad, but I think they're pretty selfish reasons people are waiting so long, personal opinion. But one of the things that's not debatable is that what people are doing and the reason people are so patient is ungodly. And so I'll be very specific. Don't practice cheating. Write this down. Sleeping around does not prepare you to be with one person. Sleeping with a lot of people does not prepare you to be with one person. And so there are things, and it's not that it can't be under the blood of Christ, and I know statistically that most of us walk into this place and we're like, well, hey, I've been less than perfect. That's okay. That's the gospel. We all get Jesus, and we can all be changed by him. So it's not condemnation, but I will tell you this as a counselor. You're stressed. Life is hard. Money's tight. Kids are driving you crazy. Not mine, your kids. You're like 40 years old. No one really gives you attention anymore because they shouldn't because you're old, right? It's not about you. You're kind of a narcissist, right? There are things that are going to happen in your life. And I promise you, if you don't crucify your flesh, those things that you thought you've crucified are just lying dormant in your life. And those things that you used to lean on in your life will come back to haunt you if they're just lying dormant. All of a sudden now you're remembering, even on a subconscious level, that reality when life wasn't as stressful because you would deal with your stress and your frustration and your insecurity, you know, just kind of fill in the blank with self-gratification that's in the immediate. And so you would have a person in your life. And when things got hard, what would you do? Well, you fall in in love, you fall out of love. You go to one college party, you go to the next college party. And this whole time, you're setting yourself up for a future where you're saying, now when I say I do for the rest of my life, I'm going to be with one person. And if you're not crucifying your flesh, here's what you're doing. You're lying to yourself, and you're lying to yourself in a way that's going to be painful for everyone around you. Because those coping strategies are going to come back. All of a sudden, your wife of 20 years isn't throwing rose petals at your feet and telling you how great you are, and there's a secretary who doesn't really know you, who might want something from you that's even selfish in and of itself, that's going to tell you how great you are, and your spouse is going, no, 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 I know that person. I know their strengths. I know their weaknesses. But you're going to be enticed by it because you haven't crucified it. And so the wisest thing you can do is to practice purity before your marriage so that you can have a greater level of health within it. Because those things that are lying dormant can come back. 
Here's another strategy. This is what I always tell my own kids. Live life backwards. You want to protect your marriage in the future? Live life backwards because when you're like 16, 17, no offense if anyone's that age in here, but I look back at my 18-year-old self and I was absolutely a complete moron. I thought I was, one of the most frustrating things about parenting is your kids, like they look at you and they think they know everything and you think to yourself, you know nothing. But they walk in this arrogance when they look at your marriage and they go, well, you know, when I do this, when I have kids, they're going, okay, let's just wait and see. But here's what I would challenge you to do if you're still young and single, and then we'll get to the married people. How do you prevent adultery? Look at your life backwards because the biggest decision you're ever going to make, whether or not uh, you turn to Jesus is number one, but the biggest decision you're ever going to make, number two, is who you marry. And so look at your life backwards, pretend that you're 40 years old, and then just ask yourself the question, who do I want to be living this life out with a few teenagers at home and money's tight? And then live life backwards in a way where you find someone that you have a preferred vision with that's a 40-year-old version of who you want them to be. And instead of trying to change them, find that marriage material when you're still single. Because if you don't, you run a high risk if they lack character to deal with infidelity in your future. Because all infidelity really boils down to is selfishness. And selfishness manifests at 15 Selfishness manifests at 25, selfishness manifests at 40, and on the deathbed, it does not change. It has to be crucified. And so the best thing you can do if you're young is have a preferred vision for your future that has Christ at the center. Because I promise you this, look at me, I'm going to tell you something that you think your parents are lying to you about. Life is stinking hard. And anyone that thinks life isn't hard will never get this microphone from my kung fu grip. Because you don't know anything. Life is hard. Now try living it with someone that's selfish, that doesn't have Christ at the center of their life. Live it backwards. Here's if we're married. Pursue intimacy in the covenant. There's a, there's a researcher. She's not a Christian. Her name's Sue Johnson. And she just, she just uh, researched two key matrix for healthy intimacy and relationships. It's actually like off a TED Talk or something. You're like, well, why would you use that? Just, just hang with me. And she boiled it down to, and this is just research, and, and it, it doesn't have opinions. It's just this is, uh, this is a commonality between people that are healthy and intimacy. She only found two key matrix for intimacy that's healthy. And then the first one is obvious. It's do I trust you? Because if you don't trust someone, it's going to be tough. And the second one is do I prioritize it? Well, then the Bible comes along, and before she ever said it, it already said the same thing. Paul talks about that to the church, that, that a husband's for a wife and a wife's for a husband. And so one of the ways that we can protect the covenant is that we can pursue intimacy in the marriage. And then that being said, the, the caveat would be, if there's not a lot of intimacy in your marriage, in no way does that then justify you doing what you want to do outside of your marriage. With that being said, you want to protect it? Then protect intimacy. Uproot sexual dysfunctions and allow for healthy intimacy where it's practiced. And I know we have all age ranges in here, so we're not going to go further, but I think we can all read between those lines. Amen? But that's something that should be a normative, healthy part of the covenant. And if there are reasons that are stopping it and trust is broken down, then deal with those things. That's a choice. Deal with those things. But pursue it. 
Here's the last one. Take out the trash. Literally, but figuratively more. Take out the trash. Goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There, what do you, where do you seek counsel from? What are your media platforms? How much time do you spend on social media taking pictures of yourself? How much time are you consumed with things that are ungodly that are just being poured into your mind? And then out of the abundance of the heart, then the mouth speaks, but the, moves, the hands move. Take out those things that are in your life that you have control over. Any influence that starts with, and here, here's, here's a huge point. Hear me say this. Any influence, what's the trash? Here it is. Any influence in your life, whether it's friends, media, etc., coworkers, family members, I promise you, crucify this or it's going to get you. Any influence that starts with this concept, you deserve. You deserve. Cut it out. It's going to poison your heart. The influence that we listen to, the trash that we take out, is not you deserve, it's honor God. Honor God. Here's the last question. I can tell the praise team's like biting to get back up here. What do you do? What a terrible sermon if you end right there. What do you do? What's the gospel impact? What do you do to heal from a heart of adultery? Well, just look to the Bible. What's the first thing you do? You repent. And repentance defined by talking to God because your sin, my sin, is ultimately against God himself. And telling God, you know, you've called me, even though I can come up with a hundred reasons of why I'm the exception to the rule, there are no exceptions to your rules. You have called me to live in purity. You've called me to love my spouse. You've called me to take out my trash, and I haven't done it, and I have sinned against you, and so I'm confessing that sin to you. I'm going to confess that sin to my spouse. And then what I'm going to do, which makes repentance different, is I'm going to walk the other way. I'm going to go a different direction, and I'm going to live the life you've called me to. Come clean. Here's the big one that I think you're only going to hear. You're only probably going to hear this from me, okay? Sounds arrogant, but I believe it. The second thing you have to do is you have to understand why you do what you do, or you're going to keep doing what you do. You have to answer the why. This is something that happens in church circles where we want to sprinkle some Jesus on something and we want to have a few verses, but we, won't, we don't want to dissect our own motives in our heart because Jesus says, again, out of the abundance of the heart, right? So it's a heart issue. He says you commit adultery in your heart. And so here's what happens at a heart level. There are things going on in your heart that you don't understand. And if you're looking at getting married, I would ask you to really deal with this now. And if you don't get married by a pastor that does some pre-marriage counseling and they don't address this issue, then they failed you too. That whatever's happened in your life, if you don't understand not just what happened, but if you don't understand why it happened, then destiny is doomed to repeat itself. And that's what so few people do. And Christians are the worst. Christians are the worst. They don't want to deal with the why. They just want a few verses. They just want behavior modification. So why do people have affairs? Well, I'll give you a few things that I see as common denominators of people in the last 15 years specifically that have come across my path, and I'll never give any names, but here are the common denominators. One of them is this. People that have affairs oftentimes live in a victim mentality, specifically men. 
It's like, well, I know what I did was wrong. And then they have a whole laundry list as to why they're the victim, even though they're the perpetrator. In the victim mentality, they live in all sorts of bitterness. I deserve better. I deserve more. They didn't give me what I wanted, so I'm going to go get it for myself. Oftentimes, people think the root of their sin when it comes to infidelity, and if you remember nothing else I say today, just remember this one. This one is worth the price of admission. People oftentimes think that in their infidelity, the root of their issue is lust, and I guess in a sense that's true. That's true, but in marriage, what I find when I'm working with people who haven't been faithful to each other, at the root of their sin is selfishness and bitterness. And it starts with this dangerous starting point of I deserve. It's okay to watch those images online because I don't see something I like at home or my spouse gives me no attention. I'm not saying that that's okay, but man, playing the victim is never going to get you where you want to go. And it is the antithesis of the gospel. And so there is a common denominator. I flirt with someone else because I don't get what I want at home. Deep-rooted character issues. Here's another one, just common denominator. What are those things that happen when we try to answer the why? Well, I'll tell you this. There is a huge common denominator between people that are insecure and people that have affairs. Very insecure men. Men that love to feel powerful, that feel powerless at home. Women that love to feel loved, that then can't keep up with that need to feel and attention-seek that their husband cannot sustain, and so they look outside of it. And it starts innocent, and it almost always starts on social media. I'm not saying social media in and of itself is bad, but if you have a proclivity to wonder, and this is the sin that you deal with, and you're sitting and typing and texting and reaching out and taking pictures of self on social media, then you're living like a fool. And as a pastor, it's getting exhausting listening to your repeated cycle of sin that you won't crucify. Insecure people. It's counterintuitive, right? You need lots of attention, and you would think, well, they're too insecure to find someone else. No, they're so insecure that they almost always find someone else. Men that really need to have rose petals at their feet, and women who need attention that their husband can no longer provide because they're actually in a marriage and not dating. You have to, if you're going to heal from this thing, understand why it happens. Another common denominator. I know this one's going long. I don't, I don't really care. It's a snow day. You're here. Lock the doors. I've got just the five minutes left, I promise. Maybe not even that. Another thing I see, I just feel like if I was you, I'd want to know, is people that are at high risk to have an affair on their spouse have unhealthy same-sex relationships. They have, like, no godly friends. Women who tend to blow up relationship after relationship after relationship with the same sex and then need all sorts of things from the opposite sex. Men who have a persona of being manly but are incredibly lonely and they have zero accountability. They have guys that they'll go shoot a deer with, but they don't have guys that they'll share their heart with. Or maybe it's sexual addiction where your view of sexuality is so warped that it turns out and manifests in an emotional affair and then a physical affair. And then always under all of it is this selfishness, selfishness, selfishness. And that plays right into the victim thing. If you don't understand the why, you're going to keep doing what you're doing. And so I would encourage you, if you want to heal from this, you have to pursue accountability. Who's that person in your life that's going to give you godly counsel when no one else will? 
Do they know everything about you? Do they know your proclivity to wonder? Who's going to get in your face? And then who are you going to submit to when they do? Last thought. What do you do if you want to heal? Bring it back to the gospel. You have to pursue Christ. You have to. I mean, you could take all of this stuff and you could go, well, this is practical and that's practical. And then you miss this and you just became like a Jordan Peterson seminar and not the gospel. You have to pursue Christ. And then here's the hope. Here's why this whole message comes together. You have something, if you're in Christ, that, that those around you don't have. And you, you have a potential and a capacity for healing that no one else has because Christ is in you. And he, the same spirit that rose him from the dead is living in you. And so now all things are possible for those that love Jesus Christ. And so we pursue him. There's hope in a world that's become very dark. And here's the closing story. I, I told you at the beginning of it that we'll come to this, and then I want you to remember what happens in Deuteronomy. That there's this woman that's caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Religious leaders are setting her up. We know that they're probably setting her up because it says that they brought a woman committing adultery. And here's the Deuteronomy tie-in and the Leviticus tie-in. But for some reason, the man is absent. And then it says in the Old Testament, if you're going to stone someone, stone the man and the woman. And so they just bring a woman to Jesus, which probably tells us that they were friends with the guy and it was all a setup to get her killed. Or more importantly, to have Jesus make a decision that they could go, aha, I got you. And so they go try to tell Jesus, aha, and they bring her before him. And they say, we caught her in adultery. What should we do? Should we stone her? And then what does Jesus say? He says, those without sin cast the first stone, and then one by one, these Pharisees start dropping their stones and walking away. And here's my point. The one person that should have ran away, if it was me, I probably would have, is this woman who's caught in adultery so that she can get away with this thing that she should have been murdered for, and instead she stays right there and has communication with the Savior of the universe. Everyone else scatters. She pursues. If we ever want to see healing in our lives from those things that affect us the deepest, we have to, instead of, and this is what we do, we run from, we have to run to. We start uprooting those things that no one knows that are ugly in our life that have been taking place since we're 12, 13, 14 years old. You want to heal, have healing from those things? Then not just one time running to. It's daily running to, running to, running to. Accountability, word of God, biblical standard of truth in your life. You run to the gospel. You run to the Savior. You run to the cross and you lay your life down from it. That's where healing comes from. And so there's no condemnation under Christ. But when we think we can do it on our own, man, we stand in condemnation. And then the scariest thing is everyone in the peripheral gets wounded. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. There's a lot of stuff that was just thrown out. I pray that you would use it, those things that are of you, that are grounded in your word, that they would be sticking points in our brains. As a church, we repent of this issue of immorality in our lives. But all of us are guilty of heart adultery. All of us have fallen short. Jesus, I pray that you protect our marriage.
protect the covenant. Help us to find hope and healing in you. And I pray these things in your name and everybody said, amen.